Hello and welcome to this Taxed and Wasted Podcast Extra. Here, you can listen to our entire conversation with Amanda Stoker. Please enjoy. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Should I say Senator Stoker, rather? No, you should say Amanda, but hi, Amelia. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing great, thank you. How are you? I'm really well, thanks. Oh, yeah, I'm so glad to hear it. Uh, I was very, very happy when uh, you agreed to to come on the podcast because the first thing that you said is, I'm happy to do it, but I just don't want to talk about coronavirus, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is great because there's so much more happening in the world, and, and it seems like that's all we're hearing about. So I'm right there with you. Thank you very much. It's um, It's definitely dominated my days because, you know, there's so many people who've got disruption to work and disruption to their ability to access a whole bunch of other services. So um, the opportunity to talk about something else is much appreciated. Yes, I agree. And uh, before we get into into kind of the politics side of thing, which is probably what our uh, listeners are interested in, yeah. I heard that you've uh, been taking on some homeschooling. So well, how, like, like a lot going? of parents, um, like yeah. a lot of parents, schools have... Um, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, um, being closed. And so my eldest child is in primary school and uh, I've got two others, but they're not school age yet, though their sort of kindy and so forth have been disrupted. And um, it means that I've got my husband and I working from home for the most part and um, also trying to homeschool my eldest. And um, I have a new respect for people who choose to homeschool all the time. Um, right. which, you know, means they're, they're pretty amazing. But um, I will also be looking forward to the moment when um, the schools here in Queensland start listening to the medical advice and are reopening because um, yeah. there's no reason why they don't need to be at school. It's, um, it's a bit bananas. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely agree. And uh, I, I can't imagine that it would be easy to balance both work and giving your kids a basic uh, level of education. So I, I can imagine that that would be uh, not super, super easy. Uh, hey, look, but... it's all part of the adventure. Um, and <laughs> it's a hell of a lot less hardship than a lot of people are going through at this point in time. So I am absolutely fine, as is the family. Thank you. Yes, Thank no, you for I'm asking. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, let's get into it then. So I, there's a couple of important things happening in Australia. Uh, and the first that I want to talk about, probably because it's the first on people's minds, is the COVID Safe app. Which means we don't totally dodge coronavirus. But hey, <laughs> that's okay. I am more than happy to talk about the app. True. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, lots of people have been um, thinking about it and scrutinizing mm. it. And um, this might be a strange thing to hear from um, a politician, but I'm really pleased with the way it's making people think about. Um, their privacy and evaluate, you know, what they do and don't want governments to be able to access, uh, what they do and don't volunteer to sort of commercial and other entities um, Mm. by way of giving up their privacy. And we're only going to get good policy on this stuff in circumstances where people, you know, meaningfully take an interest in um, what they do and don't want governments to know. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that. And I think... uh... Looking kind of at the functionality of the app, I was initially pleased because it seemed like a lot of the the data that was put on the the app was anonymized. 
And mm -hmm. it's true that for some time it is, but yeah. it only takes one contact with one person that inputs uh, that they've been, uh, that they, they tested positive for coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly there's a wealth of information that goes straight up to the government and gets uh, decrypted. Is that correct? Yeah, look, that's that's pretty right. Um, the the basic structure is that um, the data is collected on your phone. It doesn't go anywhere. It just gets um, stored up in a 21 days worth of stash of information about uh, where you've been going and who you've had contact with and things like that. Now, um, for people who take their civil civil liberties seriously, as anybody should, um, the idea that someone is collecting 21 days worth of information about oh where you're going and where you're moving is is initially uh, pretty confronting. And um, when they said they were doing an app with this national, I'm like, oh, I really don't like the sound of this. <laughs> and then um, a bunch of members of parliament, myself included, started saying, well, you know, I get that you're saying this is necessary for us to be able to relax restrictions, but we need to have a whole bunch of protections in there to be able to make it something that, um, doesn't represent a, an enormous encroachment on people's, um, you know, right to go about doing what they're doing without people sticking their nose in their business. So it is true to say that the um, the contact that you might have, if you have contact with somebody who has coronavirus, um, then the state health officer, like the, the number one person um, in the state, um, bureaucracy that um, deals with health has the right to access that information. Now, wow. I mean, that's core to its purpose. Its purpose is to help us track down who has had contact with people who we know have COVID-19. Sure. Um, if, you, if you don't do that, the app doesn't meet its purpose. Um, right. And that is an encroachment upon the privacy of people who find themselves in a position where they have had contact with somebody who has coronavirus. But in many ways, that's there to protect the person who has had contact as mm -hmm. much as it is about protecting the public more generally. And so there is a benefit to the individual that comes from a decision to download this app as much as there is um, a benefit to the wider public from their sacrifice of that information because it is mm. a privacy that is being sacrificed. Um, and there is also the, the benefit that comes from us being able to reduce the restrictions that we currently face and our ability to get around and interact with the people that we love and whose mm -hmm. company we enjoy. If we want to be able to get back to work, if we want an economy that's able to um, start the process of rebuilding and refiring, then we've got to find ways to manage this risk. And sure. um, for as many people who feel comfortable downloading it, um, to do so would be a really good thing because um, it'll mean we are able to reopen the economy again. Um, now, at the risk of, um, you know, I know everyone who, who listens to your podcast is going to be very concerned about this. They're, they're not going to like the idea of it. And, you know, if I'm honest, I don't, I don't like it either. Right. But we have... Have you downloaded it? Yeah, I have. I have. Hmm. And only after... Um, only after I found that the ministers responsible took on board a lot of the complaints that people um, like me had made about the need to pr properly protect that privacy. So this has 
more privacy protection than any app that has ever been produced by a government in this country. And um, on the analysis of many, it's better than the security you get on any sort of privately run app either. So um, that should give us some reassurance. Sure. Uh, and on the privacy, I, I suppose it's true what you say. There, there, There's kind of an acknowledgement going in that there will be some kind of, some possibility that your data will be seen by somebody. Because if this is a tracing yeah. app, then there's no real tracing without some data. Uh, That's what it's for. It's exactly. for tracing, but only in a narrow set of circumstances. And um, it's just, yeah, it, it shouldn't be understood as a, a general, um, you know, puppeteering of everybody mm. who has the app. Um, but it will mean the disclosure of information of the people who end up having contact with someone who's got COVID. Yeah. Sure. And uh, so I wanted to bring up two things kind of relating to that. And the first I found really, really crucial, and I don't see this, uh, this piece of data really being pushed enough, mm-hmm. which is that the government itself has said that we would need something like a 40% adoption rate in Australia, in Australian society for the app yeah. to be effective, which is mm-hmm. roughly the amount of people that have banking apps on their phone. And so to me, that seems very ambitious that say, to say that the same amount of people that have a banking app on their phone will, will put uh, this app that, that, that you know, is a little bit uncomfortable for a lot of people, uh, they'll, do the same, they'll have the same adoption rate. So isn't, isn't that a big bump in the road that not enough people are talking about? That if 40% of the population doesn't get it, we might not really do much with it? Well, the, the short answer is yes, there needs to be a significant number of people who are prepared to give it a go in order for it to have its desired effect. Um, mm. It's not going to provide us with um, enough of a picture of where the virus is moving um, unless we get a pretty substantial uptake. Now, I'm not sure that the, the 40% figure is inflexible. Um, I suspect it will be um, sort of examined in the light of, um, you know, how things are going. But Mm. we we do need there to be a significant number of people who are prepared to give it a go in order for it to um, facilitate the reopening of the economy because without it, it isn't managing risk in the way that it's intended to. So, yeah, it it could end up having... um, not achieved its purpose if not enough people download it. Absolutely. And that means it would be something that effectively sits on the shelf. People people delete. Yeah. No no information gets accessed and and we all go on with our lives. But um, <laughs> the you know the protections that are in place with the app I think would um, mean that you don't find that there is information being collected and disclosed. Okay in circumstances where we didn't reach the threshold for it to be a meaningful means of tracking the movement of the virus. Fair enough. And um, so that brings me to my second point, because we were talking about privacy. And yeah. I agree that, that, that a lot of the privacy safeguards uh, are, are adequate, uh, considering that this is an app for tracking. What I said before, I mean, there, there's an understanding that this is an app that is made for tracing. Uh, Mm -hmm. But this brings me back to a bill that was passed some time ago that allows the government to compel certain web platforms to provide secret backdoor access to encrypted information. Uh, So 
would would there be anything stopping the government from doing this to the digital transformation agency demanding a backdoor and being able to access this encrypted information look i'm assured that this is to be exempted from those okay. arrangements now um the legislation hasn't gone through yet the legislation mm. goes through um the next time parliament meets but um my understanding is that it is to be exempted from those arrangements um although i don't entirely accept the premise that it amounts to a backdoor but i think that's probably a discussion for another day <laughs> yeah fair enough fair enough and uh before we move on to the next topic which is actually completely unrelated to covid uh, I wanted to ask you what you think of the government's decision to use Amazon uh, to hold the data. Look, I'm not troubled by that in the sense that mm. um, the arrangement is that all the data is going to be kept in Australia. Um, huh. So the the complaints that are being made by types like Adam Bant from the Greens about <laughs> how uh, we shouldn't trust Donald Trump with our data because Amazon's an <laughs> um, American company, I think are... Uh, nothing more than a sort of anti-US kind of dog whistle. Um, sure. it's, it's not reasonable in circumstances where it is data that is being kept in Australia at all times on Australian terms. Um, as, as I say, I'm a sceptic about this kind of stuff. Um, I, mm. don't, I don't feel comfortable with the idea of tracing and tracking, um, but the fact that it's got a time limit of 21 days, mm. um, the fact that, your data never leaves your phone unless you reach the point where there is a genuine health reason to do so because you've been exposed to COVID-19. Um, right. The fact that it doesn't go beyond the chief health officer of your state and the fact that um, it is specifically exempted um, from all law enforcement access, even with a warrant, you cannot get access to this data mm. if you are someone other than the chief health officer. Um, that's unprecedented. There, there yeah. is no other type of information that is exempted from access with a warrant. And I think that reflects the seriousness with which parliamentarians like me have approached it. The concern we've expressed um, to those further up the tree than us about what's needed to make sure Australians trust this because we're a sceptical kind of people and we don't want to share all, all of our private information. Um, yeah. And I think it's... It's also important for us to consider it in the context of the kind of information that most of us quite voluntarily hand over every day of the week to, <laughs> to Google, to Facebook. Um, A very you know, good point, yeah. Every time we, we use the, the Maps mm. app on our phone, we're inviting tracking of us all the time. Oh, yeah. Have you been and to history.google.com ever? No, I haven't. Oh, it's trippy. You should see. You should see all the data, all the info that they keep on you. It's uh, it's pretty scary stuff. It's, it's probably terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's true. I mean, we depend on um, digital technologies for these kinds of things all mm. the time, and they are used to market to us. They are used to track us. They are used to do all of those things all the time. And quite frankly, law enforcement can access those in a heartbeat. Um, mm. If we're worried about digital privacy, this app is not your biggest problem not by a long shot. And given the potential benefits we can get as individuals and as an economy um, mm. from a sufficient take-up, I think the risk-reward ratio is worth it. Um, but everybody should consider that in light of their own circumstances because um, I desperately want more Australians to think about this stuff. Yeah. 
And I, and I'm sure we all also want to want to be able to go outside again. I miss outside. It's nice there. Oh, <laughs> I miss it too. <laughs> <laughs> I miss being oh. able to let my kids go to school. I miss being able to let them go to the park. Um, I miss having them not bouncing off the walls at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Okay, well, moving on to um, to the second topic that I want to talk to you about. Uh, the ACCC is about to implement uh, something that we here at the Australian Taxpayers Alliance find very problematic, where they're going to compel platforms such as Facebook and Google to share ad revenue with certain corporate uh, media outlets. So mm. the argument basically goes, uh, these media outlets are putting out content that is uh, not generating as much uh, ad revenue as it used to, but Facebook and Google uh, are, are benefiting from having that, that content on their platforms and they're making money off, the, off its presence there. And so there should be uh, some kind of, of exchange there. So I'll go into it in a little second, but do, do you want to kind of give your uh, impressions on, on this uh, proposed regulation? Yeah, it is a really tricky issue and yeah. um, I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to your point of view. The um, the ACCC is one of those bureaucracies that um, says that it's about competition and about the market, but seems to like regulation and all the yeah. um, And so I'm always a little bit sceptical about what they've got to say. Um, mm. I can see that there is a problem with um, the Facebooks and Googles and the like um, having an awful lot of market power. I really do, but yes. I'm disinclined to run a protection racket for inefficient media businesses, and um, I'm also disinclined to have government orders for one business to pay another um, right. for services for a fee, whether centrally set or not. I'm very uncomfortable with that, and um, I don't think it is uh, something that sits easily with um, my enthusiasm for the free market. The, right. There is a problem with competition in in this area, I think. Um, sure. And there is there are significant barriers to entry at present, um, mm. and all of those things should resonate in competition law. Um, sure. There's difficulties in applying that in circumstances where these are foreign companies that don't really um, want to have an awful lot to do with um, – Australian authorities, mm. and there are difficulties associated with the fact that their code and their method of operating is so very secret. Um, right. It's difficult to know how they go about their business and to assess whether or not it's having an anti-competitive effect in circumstances where we never really get a glimpse of um, the detail of what they're doing. Um, but it's incumbent on media businesses to to make their operations um so that people want to pay for them. That's yeah. how the market works. And That's if they're true. not providing, um, if they're not providing a product that people are prepared to pay for, then they either mm. need to improve the product, um, or they need to find ways to deliver the, what what is an existing, let's assume, good product in a way right. that people um, think is valuable to them. So. Um, we can think of this a few different ways. You can think of what um, 
Facebook and Google do as a form of encroachment on the IP of mm. um, media organisations. And I'm more comfortable with that kind of analysis in the circumstance of, um, you know, that fitting much more comfortably with the, um, the importance of a free market. You know, we protect IP because it encourages people to invest in it. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, I think this kind of regulation is a, a blunt instrument that's really trying to um, tackle what is essentially an IP problem. Um, sure. I'll, I'll wrap it up by, by saying this. Um, I find it very hard to accept that we should um, massively regulate this space mm. in circumstances where the major driver of the unprofitability of most commercial media organisations in this country is the overfunding of the ABC. Um, <laughs> most media organisations cannot compete with the enormous resources, the large salaries, the, mm. um, the, the ability that the ABC has to um, out-compete most of um, the commercial media outlets because mm. they just have so much public money with which to do it. Um, if we got serious about the ABC, I think we could do a lot more for making the media competitive um, than we mm. necessarily would by this kind of hyper-regulation. You're speaking my language 100%. And yes, there's a lot that a billion dollars a year will buy you. That's for sure. Uh, when it yeah. comes to the, the IP issue, I do understand, by the way, the ATA has never been, has never carried water for Facebook and Google. In fact, we have had our our issues with them before with a lot of their practices. Uh, and I do think that, yeah, there, there, there are reasons to believe that they engage in some monopolistic um, behavior, for sure. Yeah, I think they do. Uh, but then the, the, the ACCC, the, the language that they put out, is it basically there would have to be a profit sharing where there is direct or indirect uh, monetization because of their content, mm. which we did some research on this. Uh, that when they when they talk about direct monetization, that means uh, if Google republishes someone's yep. work, and they already mm-hmm. pay for that because that's that's what what they have to do by law. Uh, Facebook, for example, has uh, instant Insta articles where they kind of republish on their own platform, but all that ad revenue or a part of that ad revenue goes back to the to the outlet. So that doesn't seem like something that needs regulating because Is that it's right? already yeah. Yeah, if, uh, okay. if you go on Instant Articles, uh, whoever whoever has Instant Articles will get part of that revenue. Uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, but then on the other side, the indirect is the really problematic one. And I don't like the word problematic, but let's, let's say, I'll just use it here. <laughs> because um, let's say that I Google Amanda Stoker, because I'm, I'm going to interview you and I need to know uh, everything about your past, right? And yep. the first three articles... The, the first three results are actually news articles. Before your Wikipedia mm-hmm. page, we have something from The Guardian, SBS, and ABC. Wow. That would be considered... You're only going to read horrible things about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Maybe the Australian as well, so, so it's flattering. <laughs> um, but if we have those three results, those would be considered indirectly providing a profit to Google because that that search is monetized for them. So even if I don't click on those sites and just go directly to uh, your Wikipedia page, 
then there would have to be a profit sharing of that Google search just because those outlets were shown. And that to me seems bananas. It seems like a big, big stretch to say that they are generating content. Uh, I mean, do, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's um, an overreach. There's there's no content really that is being provided to you um, by Google simply by providing you the option of going to a website. Um, I'm not comfortable with that. And that, that's the, I mean, that's the essence of their business in the, in the sense of, you know, to the consumer and what they do. Um, you run a search, you get information. Um, but direct, direct is not as hard to stomach as indirect. Indirect is pretty uncomfortable. Yes, it is. And it's also, I mean, it seems to me a benefit, actually, a net benefit to the, to the outlet if they're, if they're showing up on Google results because there's so many of them, they'll, they'll probably get more traffic. So I'm not sure even how the, the logic serves that, they are, that yeah. there's revenue being taken from them. It's quite right. Lots of um, businesses and organisations pay a fortune to come up in the results. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, and now you're going to start penalising um, Google for providing that. Service. I mean, I think that's, that's an overreach. Mm-hmm. And it probably suggests that it's not the right way to solve the problem. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, well, Amanda, I think that that is uh, all that has to be said for today. We really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, and we hope to have you on again soon. Hey, it's a joy. Thank you very much. And um, keep up the great work. The ATA do a good job. Oh, thank you so much. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye.